Welcome to my weekly Parsha share. It's a pleasure to be here and to be back from Israel. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I spent a week in Israel. It was one of the most extraordinary weeks of my life. Um, I'll describe some of it to you, although obviously I'm not going to be able to encapsulate it all in a few minutes. And I hopefully will be writing about it this week as well. This week's share is sponsored by Shawnee and Richard Fine. In memory of Shawnee's son, Jeffrey Gilson, Eliyahu Yehuda ben Gershon, Zichrona Levrocha, whose yacht site is on the 26th of Tammuz, that was yesterday, and uh, I know how much Shawnee and Richard miss him and how difficult it is, and uh, hopefully this Torah will be an aliyah for his neshama, and we should all be zeichet to see Tuchias HaMesim. Let's talk about Israel just for a moment, because I want to set a scene for you. I went with Sabine and Uri to Israel. It's not easy to travel at the moment, as you know, um, but we managed to get all our papers in order. We got there, had taken our tests. We took more tests when we got there. And finally, on Thursday, we were present when our son, Mayor, uh, as it were, graduated as a full Tzanchani, a paratrooper in the Israeli army. It was an incredible moment. Uh, they go on a 55-mile um, journey, a walk, um, it's a hike, Masa Kumta, it's called Kumta, is a beret. It's the red beret that they receive at the end of this incredible walk, a hike, uh, where they walk from roughly the Beit Shemesh area to Jerusalem. Um, they walk through the night, they carry half their body weight, and they're walking through the night and they're keeping each other company. Uh, and they are boosting each other's confidence and strength, as some of them flag. And for part of it, they have to run up the hill with uh, carrying um, what they call the alunka, it's stretchers, um, also with uh, full body weight on it, so that uh, it's a kind of practice, it's part of their training, so that they can be full-fledged soldiers in the IDF in Sahal. And eventually they reach the um, outskirts of Jerusalem and we woke up very early in the morning it must have been five o'clock in the morning and we went looking for them and slowly but surely we circled our way around the route until eventually we came across um, we came across Mayer amazing and uh, maybe Carly can post we've got a little video of when we finally discovered Mayer among all the many hundreds of soldiers that were walking I don't know if Carly can post this now on the comments on the Zoom, but we'll certainly put it on the YouTube. Quite an incredible moment, quite a remarkable moment uh, when we finally caught up with him and his friends and he was wearing an Israeli flag uh, like a cloak, um, made him look like a sort of State of Israel Superman, which is of course exactly what he is. We walked with him the final two or three kilometers until he got to Givat HaTach Moshet, that's Ammunition Hill, which is the center of the Tzan Hanim. There we had to leave him for an hour or two. I went off to Davan Shachris. I came back together with Sabine and Uri and various other family members and friends and hundreds of other people who were there. And we celebrated with him as he received in this incredible ceremony. He received his beret and he became a Tzan Hanim. Uh, I can't describe to you the emotions, I can't describe to you the feelings that uh, we felt at that, uh, at that particular ceremony. It was really very, very special. But I, I want to jump ahead because towards the end of the day, 
um, he told me that he has a party with his friends and he'd like to, me to drive him to Tel Aviv. Well, we were going to visit Sabine's cousins uh, in Modiyin. So I said, I said to Sabine, you know, I'll drop you off at your cousins and we'll go from there. I'll drop off Mayor at his friends in Tel Aviv and afterwards we'll be picked, he'll be picked up after he's finished and we'll go back to Yerushalayim. So I dropped Sabine off and drove uh, further from Modiyim to Tel Aviv and as I got close by to his friend's um, house, he said to me, Dad, will you come out the car and say hello to... Of course, of course I'll say hello to your friends. And I got out the car and we went in and they were sitting in the yard and they'd prepared a barbecue. And as I got there, they were making a siam on a masechta in Shas. I said that. Did you hear it? They were making a siam on a masechta, on a, tr on a tractate in the Talmud. And they finished the siyam, and they said the special Kaddish that one says after finishing a tractate of Talmud. Then they put on some simcha music, and they were dancing around the table, these 28 soldiers that are his, in his unit. They danced around the table singing beautiful songs, holding hands, a fire burning in their eyes. They did that for a few minutes and then they sat down and had their barbecue and I was thinking, I held hands with them and sang with them. And as I did that, I was thinking to myself, what could be more beautiful than this? We have soldiers defending our country. We live in a time when we are expecting imminently the arrival of Mashiach, the arrival of the Messiah and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. And what could be better than having the soldiers who defend our country, who've just been through the most rigorous training that you can possibly imagine, so that they can qualify as warriors who understand weaponry, who understand tactics, who understand how to follow orders from their superiors, who understand what they need to do, sometimes painful things that one needs to do to defend oneself, to defend one's family, one's community, one's country. They've just finished that training. And in order to celebrate that great moment, they studied a Masechta, a tractate of Talmud, so that upon completion, they could coordinate their kumta ceremony when they become soldiers with a celebration of Torah. I don't think anything could be more moving than that. And it's with that story that I want to launch in to my share of today. Because Parshas Matos talks about a war, a battle that took place between the Jewish nation the Israelites, in anticipation of the conquest of the Promised Land, of that final moment that they've all been waiting for since Yitziat Mitzrayim. They've been waiting all this time, 40 years, they'd wandered through the wilderness and now they are almost ready to begin the conquest of the Promised Land of Eretz Yisrael. 
until now Eretz Canaan. And there's one more hurdle to over, overcome. And that hurdle is the battle between the Jewish nation and the Midianites. And it's already something that we've seen in Parshas Pinchas. Tzeroer es Midyonim, God had told Pinchas. Antagonize the Midianites. Moshe Rabbeinu is instructed in the wake of this story between Pinchas and the Simeonite prince and the Midianite princess, Zimri and Cosby, Tzeroer es Midyonim, antagonize the Midianites. And now we're seeing a realization of that instruction in Parshas Matos. I'm going to read through the Psukim with you, if I may. And we're going to look at an Asivas Sholem. And it's all going to dovetail so beautifully with the experience that I've just had watching Meir graduate at his Tekes Kumta and the follow-up, the Siam that he made together with his friends in celebration of that great moment in his life and in the life of the Jewish people. God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, Avenge the Jewish people. Avenge with the Jewish people against the Midianites. And only afterwards will you die. And Moshe takes this instruction and he gives it to the people. Lehmar, he says to them, Let men be picked out from among you. For the army. And let them fall upon Midian so that they can exact a vengeance of God against Midian, the country, and the Midianite people. Elef lamate, elef lamate. Strange language, which we'll see the Nesiva Shalom interprets to Medrash. 1,000 per tribe, 1,000 per tribe. Lechol matos Yisrael, for every one of the tribes of Israel. Tishlechu latzova, should you send to the army. So a thousand from each tribe were provided from each of the uh, 12 groups, 12 tribes within Israel. 12,000 were picked for the military campaign. Those are the psukim that kind of set the direction of the battle that took place between Midian and the Jewish people in these final moments before Moshe gets himself ready to die. And of course, that's going to be the whole book of Devarim. Matos Masay are the final parashios of Bamidbar. We're coming to this sort of concluding chapter of the 40-year sojourn in the desert, in the wilderness. Moshe Rabbeinu is sort of setting this final uh, piece into action. And then he's going to spend a few weeks preparing the Jewish people for the conquest and he's going to die at the end of it in Parshas V'zois HaBrocha. Let's read through the Nesivas Sholem, a beautiful Nesivas Sholem that really puts the entire thing into 
such fantastic perspective. He goes through the Psukim and, and Moshe Rabbeinu repeats those instructions. Pick from among you Anoshim. So he says the Nesivas Shalom in Eberparshas Milchama Bechemes Midyon Rabu Hadik Dukim. There are many little nuances in the parsha relating to the battle with Midyon that can that information can be derived from Dikdukim. We can derive information, and we need to look carefully, pick through it very carefully. So that we know exactly what the Torah is trying to teach us. Rashis says the Nesiva Shalom We need to understand the double element that we find in these Psukim de Baparshas Pinchas because we already saw that this instruction exists elsewhere not that long ago. After Pinchas killed Zimri and Cosby. He is told, Moshe Rabbeinu is told, and smite them. Etc. These are bad people, we need to destroy them, you need to go to battle with them. That instruction is already there. Why do we need a second instruction? It's true that over there, we don't have exact details of how the battle should take place, what it is that they should do. Only here do we see the actual, the practical instruction to go to war. But it's, it's hard to understand. Why do we wait to Parshas Matois to get into those details? of how the Jewish people should conduct themselves in this war. Why couldn't all of, the, of those details have already come and been specified when we discussed this in the first instance in Parshas Pinchas? What does it mean when it says in Parshas Pinchas? We also need to understand, says the Nesiva Shalom, Why do we need to know that Moshe Rabbeinu needs to preside over this battle, this epic battle against the Midianites, and only then he is going to die? Why is this information important? It seems... We can imply from that, we can derive information from that, from those few words, that it was essential, it was crucial, it was critical that Moshe Rabbeinu had to be alive during the course of Milchemes Midyan. That's what it means, critical. Because only afterwards, that's what God is saying to Moshe Rabbein, only afterwards can you die. It means that they required, they needed Moshe Rabbeinu to be alongside them or at their head during this battle. Why is this particular battle 
different than the battles that took place between the Jewish people and the 31 kings over a course of 14 years under Yahushua. Moshe Rabbeinu had already died. Why is this battle with the Midianites so different than the ones that the Jewish people had with the Lamad Aleph Hamalochim? They didn't need him to be on hand specifically, particularly. We need to understand the specific order and the very unique way that it is presented to us, the preparations for this battle. There was a particular gathering in of holiness, of spirituality in relation to this battle that is unique to it. We don't see it in any of the other battles. The Medrash says, and this is based on the fact that it says, Elef Lamate, Elef Lamate. Remember, we, we mentioned earlier, it says it twice, a thousand per tribe, a thousand per tribe. Why does it say it twice? So the Medrash says, it says, pick Anoshim, specifically using that word, Sadikim. Anoshim is, corresponds with the concept of a righteous person. You need to pick a thousand tzaddikim. tzaddikim you need to have tzaddikim. You need to have righteous individuals to fight this battle. It's not an ordinary battle. It's not a battle where you send your mightiest warriors in terms of physical strength and prowess. You need tzaddikim. You need anoshim. Here we come to the second elef. Remember, elef lamate, elef lamate. You had a second group of 1,000 for the battle from each tribe because Shevet. Who was standing and praying. It wasn't enough that you had warriors who were fighting. You needed to have warriors, as it were, of prayer. Warriors of spirituality. Warriors who were exemplary in their holiness and in their spirituality. The Yud base Elef Mi Yisrael Omrut Filus Abakoshes and a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand altogether of the tribes of Israel stood together in prayer while the battle was taking place. And it says that the the clay kodesh, the holy vessels, were in his hand, were in Pinchas's hand when he when he accompanied them into battle. What does that mean? Barashi b'shema sifri. Rashi quotes the sifri, one of the medrashim, that says the clay kodesh that the ark of the covenant accompanied them accompanied them into war together with the headband that was worn by the Kohen Godol or the high priest also accompanied them into the battle. Uh, and what does that mean? We can see that there were 12,000 people praying. There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the Tzitzazov. There was so much spirituality and holiness that was going on that accompanied this particular war. Kol says the We don't find this in other battles. We don't find these things included in the description of the preparations for other battles that took place between the Jewish people and the various other Gentile 
pagan forces that they were pitted against in their conquest of Eretz HaKodesh. And they fought against Sichon and Oig, who were the mightiest kings of the time. We don't find that there was a Tzitz and Orin and 12,000 people praying. And furthermore, we need to explain, says the Nesiv Shalom. There's a tremendous discussion about the bounty of war and what happened to it, how much there was, and how it was distributed among the Jewish people. Why do we need all these details? Half of it went to Eloz HaKoyen, and some of it went to the Levites. Why do we need to know these details? We know how valuable, how precious, and how rare every single word and letter of the Torah is. Why waste verbiage on discussing the bounty of war in this particular battle that took place between the Israelites, the Jews, and the citizens and the military of Midian. What is the point? And from all of this, says the Nisiv Shalom, what, what can we derive? What can we understand? That this wasn't just an ordinary war. This was something extraordinary. This was something special. This was something unusual. That's why it's being treated in this unusual fashion in the Torah. We do not find any other battles that took place in the entire Torah, not even the battle with Amalek, not any of the battles, Sichain and Oik, we don't find any of them which are detailed in this way. Quite remarkable. We need to understand exactly what's so important, what's so crucial, what's so um, deep about this particular war that we need to understand it at every possible level. We need to get every single detail and be furnished with those details in the Torah itself, not in Medrashim, which are given to us alongside the Torah and which Chazal presents us with. No, no, right there in the Torah we have all of these details. We need to understand this idea of picking. Hecholtz means to pick, to choose. Anoshim, from among the people for the war, for the army. Shalai Omar, Bocharlon. It doesn't say Bochar, which is a sort of softer word. It doesn't mean a specific um, picking. Echotsu means pick, identify. Bochar means choose, you know, you, you should recruit um, the soldiers. Anoshim. Anoshim. Or just take Anoshim. Choose from among you. Make sure that the choices are very specific. What is this trying to tell us? Says the Nesiva Shalom. Let's try and explain this entire matter. Clarify it so that we truly understand what's going on. You must understand that the battle that took place between the Israelites and the Midianites was not an ordinary battle, a military battle between two military forces 
that were sort of strategically preparing to beat each other and be victorious. This was a battle about the very essence, the very soul of the Jewish people. The Pasuk tells us very clearly, remember what it is that Balak, the king of Mayav, tried to do. He thought up, of an, he thought up an idea. How can I destroy the Jewish people? And what Bilam ben Ba'ur said back to him, responded to him after he heard his plan, his tactics to uproot the Jewish people. The Isa al-Zebazara Kodesh, the Zara explains, what are we talking about? There was never a more dangerous moment for the Jewish people than that moment when Bilam ben Ba'ur and, um, and Bolok got together and planned and plotted to uproot the Jewish people at their very root, at their very essence. That's what the Zohar says. It was more dangerous than the moment that they stood at the shores of, Har- of, of the Yamsuf and were about to be drowned. Even worse than the terrible time that they had to endure after the sin of the Egal, when they faced almost certain destruction, Moshe Rabbeinu managed to save them literally by the skin of their teeth. They were almost obliterated at that moment in time, and yet this was more dangerous than both of those occasions. Let's remember that this was a moment like when Lovon had wanted to uproot the Jewish people even before it began. Bolak and Bilom, they wanted to completely undermine the fundament of the Jewish people at that moment, wanted to destroy it so that it was obliterated forever and would never again exist. They were the antimatter to the spiritual matter of the Jewish people. That's what the Sitra Achra is. We don't have this concept of the devil, but every yin has a yang. Every positive force, let's call it Kedusha, has a negative force that counteracts it. It's Tomei. The ultimate form of Tuma, the Sitra Achra, the other side of the coin that is the positive of connectedness to God, that is the Sitra Achra, headed at that time by Bilam and Bolak. Bilam and Bolak, Haisa, Aldvar, the Lovon Bikish Lakar their only objective was to completely, even if it meant their own destruction, by the way, that's what you're going to see, even if it meant that they would destroy themselves. So eager were they to undermine, as it were, God's experiment of introducing Kedusha into a material, physical world. They were prepared to risk their own existence in order to achieve their objective. They wanted to completely undermine, uproot, destroy at its very root and foundation the um, the existence and the 
ability to survive of the Jewish people. They were of all time the greatest, most concentrated forms of evil of Tumah, of Sitra Achra, that ever existed in the world. And as it says, Bolok was no, was no uh, nothing. He wasn't a, a nobody. He was a great man. He was a great kid. He was a, he was a wizard. Somebody who understood wizardry. So I don't know what that means. I've never quite understood what this uh, black magic thing is all about. But he was somebody who could concoct powers of the spirit. And he was greater at that even than Bilom himself. They were the ultimate force, negative force, pushing back at the Koyach HaKedusha of the Jewish people. And generally speaking, of Koyach HaKedusha, of the strength of the spirituality of holiness. Sometimes you go into battle against one specific thing. I'm going to be victorious in this one specific area. But then there is the ultimate battle. Let's call it a world war against everything so that you can completely uproot and totally destroy your enemy as if your enemy has never existed. They wanted to do that. They weren't trying to just kill a few Jews. They weren't trying to destroy one aspect of the spiritual existence of the Jewish nation. They wanted to, this was a holocaust of, of the ultimate proportion. They wanted to destroy the Jewish people physically and annihilate them spiritually. Legamri, Mishoreshoi, from their root. This nation, this Amanifcha, will no longer exist ever again. The way to do it is to create a division between God and the Jewish people, to create a dividing space that God and the Jewish people will no longer have a relationship. And that's why the Zohar says that this was the greatest threat ever in history to the Jewish people. There had never been anything like it before. And one might say again, although in a moment perhaps I'm going to suggest that we are going through something quite similar right now. There's a whole Gemara there that talks about Bilam and Balak and this whole battle between the Jewish, which they were unaware of. The Jewish people were blissfully unaware of the threat to them from Bilam and Balak. But that's the Gemara and Daf Kuvav in Sanhedrin. Bilam said to Balak, You should know something that God hates immorality, sexual immorality. In, I mean, there's nothing that he hates more. And one way in which we can totally divide the Jewish people as a whole from God is by introducing immorality as a way of life for the Jewish people. We can in fact totally destroy the bond between Jews and God by making immorality their way of life. That's what he wanted to do. And that's what it means when the Pasuk says, 
they are tsurim, they are antagonists, antagonizers to you. It doesn't mean that they were antagonizers in the past. They are continuous tsurim to you by, by introducing this as a normative way of life, by zima being Im, uh, sexual immorality being a normal way of life, they are creating a division. They are breaking the bond between the Jewish people and God. It's not something that happened in the past. It's a constant and ongoing threat to the Jewish people that this even exists right now. And by virtue of this being in existence and in constant existence, it is an enduring threat that might result in uprooting the Jewish people from its roots. If you had Moshe Rabbeinu, as the greatest prophet of all time on one side, you have Bilam as his counter strength on the other. Every ying has a yang, every Moshe has a Bilam. If you have somebody as great as Moshe Rabbeinu, you can assume that there must be somebody as great at the other end of the spectrum. In this particular instance, it was Bilam. He is the one, he's the ultimate form of knowledge, of holiness, of sanctity. He knew God, as it were, face to face. There was no one who had a greater access and a greater understanding, a greater awareness of Kedusha, of God, than Moshe Rabbeinu. But then you have this, this counter force that's called Bilam. He understands God, but from the negative perspective. He sees everything from the perspective of the material. He, he has a knowledge of God, but it's an undermining knowledge of God. It's a cynical knowledge of God. It is the exact opposite of the Kedusha that we see in Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's why it says, only after the battle with Midian will you be gathered to your people, will you die, Moshe Rabbeinu. For in this battle they required Moshe. They had no choice but to have Moshe at their head, at their side. Only through having him on their team, as it were. He was the powerful spiritual athlete that could beat Bilom, who was his, his counterweight on the other side against whom they were going to battle. Only Moshe Rabbeinu had the capability. Ultimately, of course, with the help of the military and the prayers and everything else, he could be the one that would break the clipper, this husk, this negative spiritual energy that is represented by Bilam. Um, and then you can say, and Mihai Taima, from this for this reason, they needed for this particular battle to gather in and to concentrate and to rely on 
Koichis HaKedusha, every possible weapon that they had in the Kedusha armory. That's what they needed for this battle. Sheyud base elef ish elef lamate omdu bitfilos bakoshos. We have the elef lamate with the soldiers, but you had, and we're going to see in a minute that they were tzaddikim as well. But you needed to have elef lamate who were prayers, people who were involved in prayer, involved in Torah, involved in spiritual acts, so that they could act as a backup to those who are going into battle in itself. Verak tzaddikim. Here you come to the key. And even those who went into war, they needed to be tzaddikim. It's not enough that you've got people going into war and they're just relying on the prayers of those who are sitting and learning Torah or davening. It's not good enough. We knew that those who go into battle are themselves tzaddikim. Remember what it said, Hecholtzu lachem it says, the Posuk says that they needed to choose Me'itchem Anoshim. They needed to choose Anoshim. Anoshim, says the Nesiva Sholem, he's not the only one, are Tzadikim. The greatest of all of them, the one who initiated this moment of Kanoos. He has to go into battle together with the Orem, with the Ark of the Covenant, and together with the Tzitzazov, with the, with the golden um, forehead, the, the little band that goes on the forehead of the Kohen Godel, the holy thing which says, Kodesh Lashem. He needed to grasp hold on to, of these holy items and go into war, into battle with the Jewish people. This wasn't like the battle with the 31 kings where it's just about going to war to make sure that I'm victorious and you lose. This was a war for the heart and soul of Judaism, of spirituality in the world. It's a heavenly war. Of the Koyach HaKedusha, of the holiness in the world against going into battle with the Koyach HaTuma, the Koyach which is destructive, undermines the spirituality, undermines the mission that God has for the world. Vasitra Achra and this ultimate form of negativity which is represented by Bolok and represented by Bilam. This is the ultimate war of good and evil, of the Jewish people representing good and the evil of those who want to undermine everything good that the Jewish people stands for. There was never another battle like this in the history of the Jewish people. And that's why we need to have the details of the Shevi and the Malkayach, all the different, the bounty of war that they managed to gather in. This is not just ordinary things that they gathered on the battlefield. This is a representation of conquering, of being victorious against the Sitra Achra. This is the ultimate. And what do we do with it? Every possible negative aspect of the physical material world were encapsulated in the bounty of war that they captured on the battlefield when they went to war with Midian 
and will be victorious. And therefore they needed to take these physical things and rearrange them, reconfigure them somehow, make some change in them that drew them out of their tome, their impure status, and turned them into something that was holy. Every aspect is written in the Torah. Unusual for the Torah to go into such vivid detail. But it does when it comes to this. How exactly they divided up the spoils of war. So we understand how they elevated something from the mundane, from the profane, into something holy. And the Torah goes into vivid detail how it is that they elevated the negativity of Midian into the spirituality of what it is that God wants from the Jewish people. This is not something that you can separate out. You can say, well, it just happens to be a marginal aspect of the war that the Jews had with Midian. No, no, this is an essential component, as essential as actually winning the war. Winning this battle against Midian, it was uh, important for us to know exactly what they did with the spoils of war. If they hadn't taken this, these spoils of war and used them in an elevated fashion and done with them whatever it is that needs to be done in order to create the positive energy of spirituality in those things, they wouldn't have won the war. They may have been victorious, but they would not have won the war. I think that this piece is such a remarkable piece of Nesiva's Shalom because it tells us something that we really need to know, that we really need to appreciate, which is that the battle of the Jewish people in its conquest of Eretz Yisrael, it's not good enough just to rely on military victory. Unless we have tzaddikim who are fi fighting our wars, unless we have tzaddikim who when they become soldiers, go off and make a siyum and sing and study Torah and are proud of their Judaism, unless we're able to turn the forces that protect the Holy Land into people that we can be proud of as Jews, then we're vulnerable. It doesn't mean we won't be victorious on the battlefield. We could be victorious on the battlefield, but we've not finished the job. We haven't quite finished, we haven't quite got there yet. And then the war is just going to keep coming back to us again and again and again. And years will pass and we'll still be fighting these same battles. And we need those people. For every thousand soldiers, we need a thousand who are praying. By the way, not people who are separating themselves and say, I don't care about the soldiers. They do their thing, we do our thing, we're not connected. No, no. It all needs to be an integrated system. Where you have those who go into battle who are Anoshim, who are Tzadikim, who are like the unit of my son Meir, who are ready to study Torah every day. They have a shear every single day in his unit. This is a crack a, a unit of the paratroopers of the Tzanchanim. Every single day they have a shear. Every single day they get up and the first thing they do is they go to Davin Shachris. Every day they have Minchamariv. Every day they have Torah study sessions. And when they're on their own, there's no rabbis there. They're celebrating the fact that they have become Tzanchanim. They make a siyam and they're dancing 
and singing Simcha Nigunim, Torah Nigunim. That's who we need on the battlefield. But also we need those who are going to be alongside them, who've bought into the fact that this is a crucial moment in Jewish history. This is a critical moment. This is like the moment that we had when Moshe Rabbeinu was leading us. And we couldn't let him go. Only Achar Teosef El Amecha. We needed Moshe Rabbeinu to be at the head of the Jewish people, to be alongside the Jewish people. Because this is the moment before the Messianic redemption. Like it was then, the moment before the Jewish people were going to inherit finally. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they were going to inherit the promised land. Then they go into battle and they fight the battles over 14 years with 31 kings. That's all well and good. But we need to get to the moment when we can claim not just a material, physical victory against our enemies, but a spiritual victory where we take every stone of the Holy Land and turn it into something spiritual and something special. When we turn it into something which is a realization of God's dream of the chosen nation for this world. We'll leave it here for today.